Hello and welcome back to the other 99% podcast where we take a step back from the 1% gains that society has become obsessed with and instead talk about the other 99%. Throughout this series we will discuss everything from nutrition to sleep, training methods, work-life balance, leadership and mental health. George, how's your week been? Third, third time lucky. It really is third time lucky I hope. Um, yeah, having had no technical issues for months, we're now fighting with the uh, with the internet, aren't we? Um, but other than that, I've had a good week. Um, I it's been busy at work, but I've managed to PB my squats yesterday, um, which will be seven days ago by the time this episode airs. Obviously, recording on a Monday. Um, but yeah, that was like a, a real big milestone for me, um, and it's been quite nice. I was sort of working towards that number for like a few months and very focused for the last sort of two months um so yeah that was just like a real nice way to round off the weekend actually is that a long-time pb for you it's not quite no um but it's very close nice yeah Um, next go for it it will be nice yes similar to you work's not been great we had we traveled to london to play chelsea yesterday and uh, lost 2-0 unfortunately so we've had a bit of a difficult start to the season losing two games in a row but their performance was actually much better yesterday so that was positive um got back quite late last night and like yourself i pb'd on my squad today which i was i was happy with not an all-time pb either i don't think but obviously i changed my technique a bit and i'm squatting deeper now so it's an all-time pb at that depth so happy with that because i've been struggling with these headaches i was getting in the gym um and then I was ill for a week. So it was my first time really training in two weeks. But yeah, it felt good and I didn't get a headache. So I was very happy this morning. And also, um, you've been sort of, whilst you've been working back up to that number, you've been team anti-squat as well, haven't you? So um, it's been a bit of a journey uh, and a bit of a, I don't know, a kind of lesson in commitment and consistency. Because although you were struggling with a bit of pain, um, and well quite a lot of difficulty with the movement itself you've obviously stuck with it and found a way to adapt to that and, and now it's paid off yeah well, i did completely drop it i don't think i squatted for like a good year maybe longer um but yeah i don't really know why i started it again either but yeah the, i think the key there is <laughs> like you said a bit of consistency like figure out what works for you alter the exercises if you need to like using a heel wedge is one of the best things i ever did for um my squat and it just made it completely pain-free for me yeah well, i find it easier but i i just got a pair of your old lifting shoes and that sorted me right out nice <laughs> um so this week we're talking about the second part of james smith's how to be confident book yeah. uh, we sort of spoke about this before we came on but we both had slightly more mixed feelings about this side of it didn't we yeah, I'm a big fan of James Smith. Like all of our listeners will know, we speak about him all the time. But I didn't actually enjoy this book as much as his previous two. I don't know if it's because I listened to the audio book instead of actually reading it, maybe. But yeah, I just felt like this was much less impactful in terms of what I'll take away from it. Whereas from the other books, there were some really, really clear things in there. Um, but yeah, this book, I found it a bit more, I don't even know how to describe it. There are a few key things in there which we'll go over, which I think are really useful. But in terms of going forwards, I don't know what I'd go and implement tomorrow to make me more confident. Yeah, I think I think there's one or two things for me that I, I would definitely take away that I could think were like easy wins. 
but on the whole um i don't think it was necessarily i, I just don't think it resonated with me in the same way because it talks about life from a kind of stage of life that i'm not in um so the kind of the examples and things that he was giving were not necessarily that relevant to me it's like when we spoke about jordan peterson's one who was talking about being a parent um you know yeah, not yeah. a parent it didn't really make any any sense do you, do you feel like it didn't resonate with you as much because you would describe yourself as confident or um well i think we'll come into that like the different ways that confidence can kind of presents itself like there are certain situations that he was describing that I would be absolutely terrified to go into and to attempt but I don't actually have a desire to go and do those things anyway so he spoke quite extensively about travel and things like that I don't have the urge to travel extensively and particularly not on my own because that's just not a motivator for me in terms of like what I like doing so you know I don't know if it's because I'd call myself confident, but I definitely think confidence is something for me that's come over time. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've said the same for me. Like thinking back to when I was at school, I was very, very, um, what is the opposite of confident? Not confident. <laughs> <laughs> High quality, as always. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast delivers week in, week out. But yeah, over time, um, yeah, and I, again, I don't know if I'd describe myself as confident now, but definitely when I look at what I was like when I was younger, I'm much, much more confident than that version of myself. Yeah, and I think there were one thing that I'll, I'll sort of t start on as a, a takeaway for me was the comparison between internal and external confidence, because people can present themselves externally as quite confident um or even overconfident and quite arrogant and loud and brash but actually that can be a, a real sign of insecurity um or lack of confidence so maybe they are confident but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are so the internal confidence he sort of splits up into four sections um thoughts image growth and values and the thoughts was our kind of internal dialogue that we have um and we can actually be quite critical and i've said that before about ourselves being the, our, our own harshest critics um, and then image and that we all have a warped perception of the way we look and this can be um, that we think we look fantastic uh, and we don't um, or that you know we, we kind of feel that we we look terrible and you know like I said <laughs> earlier this is opportunity number one to start bashing social media um, but it does expose us to like the point one percent of people that are all shredded with six packs or whatever and we think that's how most people in society look or how society thinks we should look and actually that's not true um, so that image thing can take a real uh, dent there growth um, I really like this one because it's all about reflecting and that's something that I never used to do, but certainly do quite a lot now, kind of taking where you are at this moment and looking where you were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, and looking at how far you've come from that point. Um, and that that idea can actually re really increase our internal levels of confidence quite quickly. Um, and then values, and we've spoken about values quite extensively and how important they are to us and if we're not living in line with our values and we're not behaving in line with our values then our confidence is going to be shaken because those are the foundations like our cornerstones and without those it's it's quite difficult to build a, a confident and a, a definite version of ourselves because uh, we're kind of like building a house on sand as it were yeah nice i really liked those the 
the body dysmorphia one's interesting. Like, I've definitely struggled with that myself because like going back to my background of competing in men's physique, and it's something I'd actually like to get back into. But having that awareness that you know it's not it's not normal, it's not um, necessarily healthy to get to those levels of that leanness. So having that awareness, because when you come out the other side of that and you start gaining weight again, it's super super hard to not have those thoughts come into your head. So yeah, that, that's a real good one. And like you said, just maybe get yourself off social media or don't follow all those accounts of um, shredded people that maintain unrealistic levels of body fat year round. Thinking of um, just going back to our Atomic Habits episode where we spoke about creating friction between us and unhealthy habits. Um, it can be the tiniest thing. So I've actually moved my social media apps off the first page of my home screen on my phone. And I, my time on them has cut by 50% just because they're one swipe further than they were before. I now just don't look at them. Um, it's ridiculous. Like it takes almost no effort to get on them still, but because they're not there in front of me, I, I just haven't engaged with it. And I've had a really great week. I might do the same as that. Try and get my screen time is going down each week, which I'm happy with. I'm, but it's still, I think I'm down to three hours now. Okay, because I actually made a note. Uh, well, I'll just say it now. He he reckons that the average person at the moment spends five and a half hours on their screen a day. That's mental. Obviously, that, I think that's outside of work as well. Okay, so that's outside of work. They spend five and a half hours on their phone. Yeah, because obviously, if you work at a computer, then it's very different. I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I that's not ne like that's not negative screen time, is it? That's a positive thing, and obviously not all screen time is negative. But if it's your job, it's it's slightly different. Yeah, yeah. What were the other other points you mentioned there? Growth. I really like that one. We spoke a little bit about that at the start, didn't we? Just looking back at what we were like when we were younger. We've come a long way since then. One of the things that James has spoken about in other, um, I don't know, it might have been in not a life coach, but he talks about. Yeah. We always look forward to. Wait, let me get this right. We the like the part of our life we're in right now is the part that we used to look forward to. And when I think about that journey, like that really really hits home for me. And it what that message says to me is make the most of life each day now because you're in the part of your life which is exactly where you used to want to be. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And I think that. That sounds like quite a deep, profound statement, doesn't it? But that can just be like, I mean, I quite like the film Yes Man um, yeah. with Jim Carrey, where he says yes to everything for a year. And I'm not suggesting that that's actually realistic and what people should do and it'll make you happy. But I think like a little pinch of that um, could like actually help our confidence and put us into new situations just by saying yes to things and really embracing where we're at and not worrying too much about where we're going because what will happen will happen and yes we can we can do certain things to kind of shape that that future but if we're living by our values and we're trying to embrace where we are then everything's going to work out fine anyway it's a good film that one the one of the key messages for me early on in the second part of this book was way spoke about natch versus naff which is the need to achieve versus the need to avoid failure which is two different types of motivation for whatever task you're trying to complete and the example which made it the most clear for me was talking about this the first and second serve in the tennis so 
first serve, you're driven by the need to achieve. So you're going to try and whack it as hard as you can, try and win the point, ace them, whatever you're trying to do. I don't know too much about tennis. And then the second, the second serve, if you if you are unsuccessful with your first attempt, there it's more about your 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 motivation there is the need to avoid failure because you need to get the ball into play to give yourself a chance of winning the point so you don't double fault. And for me, the key thing here was nine times out of ten, or most of the time, the need to achieve is going to be a better motivator than the, the need to avoid failure because it's going to put you in a positive headspace and you're not going to be scared of, fa- of failing. And the quote which I really liked, which I'm going to have to read because I can't remember off the top of my head, was if you're if you're willing to fail enough, you can then possess what is necessary to become truly successful. And that for me is a really really key message from the the first. Um, part of the second half of that book yeah and there's there's lots of things that kind of or quotes that kind of go alongside that isn't it you know life's not about the amount of times you get knocked down it's about the amount of times you stand up again and and that sort of thing and um it's absolutely right and we sort of spoke before as well about um the way that you approach a task and if you need to achieve your metric of success is very different than avoiding failure so if you're just trying to avoid failure you're trying to achieve the the bare minimum that you've set for yourself whereas and then you're happy with that whereas if you're trying to achieve there's almost no ceiling on how far you can go with that performance or that task or that goal um and then when when you do fail because you will fail at some point nobody goes through life without failing at anything like your your response to that is much better i think because yes you failed at the next bit but actually you're you've already achieved you know three things before it whereas if you're a need to avoid failure person you can only see that failure and that kind of dictates your thought process then yeah yeah and he he also you have to remind me on this one but he spoke about the amount we learn from failure and it's actually a really positive thing that's where you learn the fastest or you learn the most so actually putting yourself in those situations where you do fail is really, really valuable for your own development and your own growth. Yeah, it was the um, when the light bulb was created, wasn't it? It was like 10,000. It was either a thousand or 10,000 times uh, failed to create the light bulb. And they said, well, he didn't find one way to do it. He found 10,000 ways not to do it, which is equally useful information, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably more useful than if you just got it right first time because you probably understand the uh, like more of the me- mechanistic reasoning of why it worked in the end. Yeah, exactly that. So I think one of my main takeaways, partly from this book, but more the thought process that it stimulated for me, was my approach to failure and how I feel about it. And, you know, we both started new jobs, but I went through a period of you know several interviews um about a year or so ago and it it can get quite demoralizing where you're in these interview situations and either they decide you're not right for them or you decide they're not right for you and you've kind of built yourself up to this moment and then it's just massively deflating um and the ability to kind of get up and go to the next one and keep putting yourself out there you know that's not easy um and i i definitely felt that firsthand last year yeah Actually, on the topic of interviews, this, this was one of the things I was going to talk about. When you spoke about internal, external, because a lot of the feedback I got from my interview recently was I come across as really confident in how I'm presenting, what I'm saying. 
but internally that's not the case at all because in strength and conditioning anyway there's never one answer you can never have complete certainty that it's the right thing to do because you're dealing with people that are ultimately complex and you can't predict the outcome so you can never have complete certainty in doing the right thing but yeah like when you were talking about internal versus external then i just found it really interesting because that is a lot of the feedback i get and how you present externally is definitely for me anyway not how i'm feeling internally which is which is interesting and again like in that example that's probably the need to avoid failure is driving me to present myself in a really confident way so i can try and get the job but yeah so we can do both in our lives can't we yeah but what, what i was going to say was that's not necessarily a good thing there either because if i was more open and vulnerable and talked about the different possibilities or why i'm not completely certain it might come across in, in a better way instead of coming across as like you said maybe a bit arrogant or like like you know it all which which is not the case yeah the um when we flip that round so you've spoken about um well actually it's not flipping at all it's exactly the same thing but when you've spoken about your outward presentation versus your inner feeling um he he referenced daniel kahneman i think it's kahneman or kahneman um oh. Yeah, thinking fast and slow. And it was about how our external presentation of body language can change our, our internal feelings um, yeah. and level of arousal. So the, the way they did it, and I thought this was quite good because the context is so random that the people in the study would definitely have no idea what was being measured. Um, but they had to watch a cartoon with a pencil in their mouth and half the group had the pencil sideways so they were sort of grinning while they had the pencil in and the other ones had it long ways in so they were almost frowning to hold the pencil in and then they were asked how funny they found the cartoon and those that were um had it in so it made them smile reported that they found the cartoon more funny than those that were frowning so our external presentation can change how we're feeling internally without us yeah. realizing that so i think that's a really important thing to to bear in mind when you when you stand to public speak, you know, do you stand on the corner of the stage or in the corner of the room and you have your shoulders hunched or or do you try and command the space and you, you know, pin your shoulders back and have a wide stance and, um, you know, and that can change how you feel about the presentation you're giving. Yeah, and this took me back to the episode we did on Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. His first rule was stand up straight with your shoulders back. Yeah. How, you, how you present yourself will change how, how you see yourself and how others see see you as well and the downstream effect that that can have on the outcome is huge yeah and this piece of research absolutely blew my mind which was amy cuddy's ted talk um about confident body language and how it's actually innate so you know we could say that you know when you when you or i win something and we stand up and we cheer or we punch the air or whatever that could be a learned or observed behavior but her research was into blind people so when blind people won at something they stood taller they put their shoulders back and they presented in a confident manner having never seen what a you know inverted confident body position might look like they still adopted that kind of stance so it is gen like i think it's genetic within us to want to present in a certain way when we feel a certain way so why not do it the other way around yeah yeah that's fascinating i hadn't heard of that before yeah it that i think for me was the coolest piece of research in this book um and it's great to read his books because he is so 
thorough in his research he he does pull a lot of information together much like we do on the other 99 percent really <laughs> um to um, the next bit what's that what, what were your next take games well he spoke about life's passengers um and he sort of put it into context of if i was going to ask you to drive for 10 hours the person with somebody the person who's in that front passenger seat is going to change your perception of that journey so if it's someone that you really like and you really get on with and you connect and it's going to be fun then you're going to have a very positive feeling about that um journey whereas if it's someone that's kind of very negative or pulls you down or sort of always criticizes then you're going to have a very different perception of that journey and you sort of liken the car journey to how we are in life and the people that we have around us and I like this quote and it says, you know, show me uh, the five people you spend the most time with and I'll tell you who you are. Yeah. Um, but he offered it from a perspective that I really hadn't considered before, where you have people that are so close to you and you assume that everyone who's close to you and wants the best for you will encourage you to achieve things. But actually, sometimes the people who are closest to you will actually say or maybe you shouldn't do that because they don't want to see you fail because they know what that failure you know we're talking about being confident but we're not for a second saying that failure doesn't suck and it doesn't upset you and it's not hurtful like they want you to avoid that emotion because they care about you so having those people around you but kind of being aware of you know why they might say maybe you shouldn't do that or maybe not this time etc etc it's because they don't want to see you hurt and actually that advice might not be in your best interests. Yeah, yeah, completely. And he also spoke about that in his previous book. Often when you, when you set out to achieve something, and in this example, he's talking about weight loss. It's the people that are closest to you that are sometimes the biggest barrier. Like, say it's your other half and you're trying to lose weight. And then, I don't know, maybe cooking or like trying to feed you like chocolate or something to make you happy or I don't know, I don't know whatever the motivation is, but they, they can be the biggest barrier. You know, oh, you don't need to lose 10 pounds, what you want about that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of developed in to talk about um, a lot of the behaviour that we present is learned, right? So, well, pretty much everything that we present is learned. It's that nature versus nurture argument, and, you know, that will endure for the rest of time, but ultimately it's it's an element of both. Um so Banjura and Skinner were two people that did this and I I like Banjura's one the bashing bobo where they showed videos of people sort of beating up this inflatable doll and then children just copied the behavior having been given no verbal instruction um and there are a couple of different conditions and that kind of impacted um what the children did but the biggest one that impacted it was the significance of that person so in our early years our most significant people are our primary caregivers and i say that because it's not necessarily parents you know um some people are orphans or you know adopted or or, or whatever um there's all sorts of scenarios but the people that are our primary caregivers are our most significant who we learn from and when we see success in significant others or people that we strive to emulate so that could be like football stars on tv or bodybuilders or you know successful business people like it, it, it doesn't matter but when we see them being successful we're more likely to try and copy the behavior and 
I, obviously for for very clear reasons they they spoke about Joe Rogan's podcast now that resonated with me because um he runs the most successful podcast in the world and what he does and how he goes about it is something that you know we try we strive to to emulate when he first released his podcast there were 500,000 podcasts in the world and as of 2018 um sorry that was in 2018 and then as of this year there are over two million so it's gone up by more than fourfold um in the last couple of years just because people have seen success and and enjoyment and pleasure and learning coming out of this that they want to do that too now almost nobody listened to joe rogan's podcast at the start when he first brought it out and now he's the most successful in the world and i think it's uh i'm sort of rambling and sidetracking a little bit here but it's a lesson in commitment and um like believing in yourself and your own self-confidence that you will achieve something because he's now done something like 1500 or 1700 episodes oh, that's a crazy amount of episodes when we quoted the stat that most people don't make it 20 yeah. like he's done thousands yeah, yeah. um so yeah obviously a bit of a rabbit hole there but a, a lesson in kind of tenacity and how that can develop confidence over time just by continually sticking to something there's an interesting um interesting tangent because he had chris williamson on and i listened to both of their podcasts but he was talking about the nature versus nurture argument and they looked at the twin studies where you have identical twins that are separated at birth and they reckon it's about 50 50 between nature versus nurture so half of your behaviors are going to be genetic whatever you got from your parents and then the other half are probably learned behaviors or the people you surround yourself with which i think is a fascinating stat um I, I don't know which way i would have predicted whether it was nature versus nature yeah it's probably about 50 50. yeah um but when when we look at these but successful the, people the, the key thing there is that obviously your, your genes are your genes you can't change that so focusing on like this book talks about the people you surround yourself with or being aware of the influence they might have on you is key yeah and that governs like our metrics for success right you know um if, if i heard this sort of presented to me this way before like thinking about cutlery if you're a spoon and you spend your whole life trying to be the be the world's best fork like you're never going to be any good at it but if you spend your whole time trying to be the world's best spoon like your metrics for success you can be a lot more successful if you understand what it is you're trying to achieve whereas if you're always governed by somebody else's standards your confidence is going to be really really low yeah um and hold on trying to be the best pork or spoon but then there's another one and i you know as but I, teacher, I like that the message says I, I think anyone can be world class at something you just need to find yeah. what it is i truly believe that yeah absolutely and it doesn't necessarily have to turn up overnight either um we've spoken before about it takes ten thousand hours or 10 years to become an overnight success and you know it does take a lot of hard work and i think it's sometimes difficult to know which path to take and there's a, a wonderful um sort of commencement speech given by benedict cumberbatch where he he just says just do and 
the the theme of his speech is just do stop worrying stop waiting stop complaining stop thinking about every possible outcome and just do because if you are doing and you are developing and you are working towards something like ultimately that's going to make you happy success builds confidence and and you know it's like a, a snowball effect yeah yeah so just take action basically yeah which is a really really good message and it, it builds on all the stuff we've spoken about so far that's covered in this book like if you fail there's nothing that that bad is going to happen one of the bits I really liked, which I've spoken about before, because it's one of my favourite bits of psychology research, is the spotlight effect, which feeds into that as well. You probably think the spotlight is on you and everyone is watching you, when in reality that's not the case. You're focused internally on yourself, but everyone else is also focused internally on themselves. And the research, well, I've explained it before, but they studied university students. They gave them a T-shirt of either a really unpopular character at the time, and it was people like Hitler, or a really popular character and then they asked the students how many people noticed what t-shirt they had on and they drastically overestimated it for the negative character they guessed 50 percent of the people noticed and it was 25 for the popular character they also guessed 50 percent, and it was 10 percent. so it's i love that bit of research because you do everyone's been in that situation where you feel like all eyes are on you but it's, it's just not the case so understanding that is really really liberating and it feeds into that of the need to achieve versus the need to avoid failure. If you do fail, it doesn't matter because no one's watching you for a start or much less people than you think. And then even on top of that is just because they've noticed doesn't mean they care. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking about going into a gym and what was it, 25%, so that's a quarter. So if you've got a gym that's got 40, 40 other people in it, you're, you know, 10 of them are going to notice you. Like that's not even like staring at you or focusing on you or worrying what you're doing. Only 10 people are actually going to notice that you're there. Yeah. yeah. So when you feel like um, intimidated in that kind of environment, don't get me wrong, like I fully understand where you're coming from, but we need to have that conversation in our heads, like that internal confidence, the thoughts we can control. They're not looking at me. They're not actually interested in me. I'm here to do, you know, my bit for me. Yeah. And, and again, if, if you do fail, you probably learn from it, learn what your limits are. You might go into your next session with a better idea of what weights you need to lift or you know, there's there's so many positives to failing. Actually feeling safe to fail is a really, really big positive because I don't know many people that go into the gym and are happy to know how to fail and lift safely. But once you've done that, you're never scared to take on a weight. Yeah, I actually teach it, obviously working with a lot of youth athletes and youth performers i will teach them how to fail in the first few weeks because at yeah. some point they're going to need that information and it's too late to learn it after it's already happened so yeah. we might yeah. as well learn it early and, and inspire that confidence yeah um totally different tangent um and kind of sort of cross-linking back to part one of the book was about conversations and having the ability to a have difficult conversations but b then also contradict somebody so in the first part of the book he he set the challenge of asking for a discount on your coffee you know the answer is probably going to be no but like the i you've put yourself out there and you know the whole world hasn't ended so we, we learn from that that we can have these difficult conversations but it becomes more difficult when somebody is saying something to you 
with confidence they believe it to be true um or they're trying to convince you of something and you you fundamentally disagree with them and you need to get that across and you know maybe in a boardroom or a business setting or a work life um or you know with a partner with a friend all these situations we come across at some point our opinion is going to be different to somebody else's um so how do we go about approaching those conversations because it can be quite nerve-wracking particularly if you really care about that person or that person pays your wages like you don't necessarily just want to go in all guns blazing and just piss everybody off for the sake of it do you um and i i liked his his way that he called it the confidence prefix and he said that you start a sentence with i could be wrong but and then you've kind of disarmed the the other person already because you're you're challenging them but you're not entering into like this kind of assertive um argumentative type of conversation so you're still confident to put your point across but you've given yourself the opportunity to be confident because you haven't um attacked the other person as it were yeah 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 that's the best way of putting it i was listening to again another podcast but it's, it's like a strength training one but in the hypertrophy world, everyone slams deadlifts for not being very good for building muscle. And you can imagine how emotionally attached people get to deadlifting and they'll fight it so hard. But it's like, I'm not trying to batter you for your opinion. And if you like deadlifting, that's really cool. But if you approach things logically and don't get emotionally attached to things, you can have a much better perspective on stuff. Obviously, yeah. I think he spoke about religion in the book, didn't he? Which is obviously a big one. Yeah, I, I don't know how I, I took about the religion stuff, but um, just on your your bit about the deadlift and emotional attachment, we've actually said before that that can be quite a useful thing for training adherence, can't it? We yeah. become emotionally attached to these exercises and things like that. So, yes, the argument might be that um, you you shouldn't use the deadlift in hypertrophy settings or bodybuilding or what have you, but actually you love deadlifting so you go you do your deadlifts you smash that lift and then you complete four or five other exercises in that session as well that you wouldn't do if you hadn't been drawn to the gym in the first place by your deadlift so we can kind of measure that in different ways as well and the other thing which links back to the book is setting yourself performance goals which again he spoke about because that'll give you so much more fulfillment than again like if you're chasing like an arbitrary physique you're trying to aim for you're not going to end up happy. But if you set yourself a two times bodyweight deadlift and you hit it, that's going to make you much, much happier than maybe gaining a pound of muscle over a year, which you're probably not going to notice by the end of the year anyway. Yeah, not only are you not going to notice, but like also it's very reversible, right? Whereas if you achieve uh, a personal target that you can attach uh, you know, a very black and white binary figure to, um, whether it's a certain distance running, or even if it's just like I'm going to wake up every day at seven instead of eight, like did I do it? Yes or no? You can be confident in that success. Whereas if it's something transient like body image, it can change. So you don't necessarily gain confidence from how you used to look because you no longer look that way. Whereas you can gain confidence from the fact that you have completed certain lifts or you have run a certain distance. That is an achievement that sticks with you. And I think that's longer lasting than um, something that's, you know, a little bit more arbitrary. Yeah. 
there, there you have it. I think we've done a very speedy job of covering up the second half of that book. Yeah, I've got one more quote um, that I would like to throw in there. And it's do nothing, say nothing and be nothing and you'll never be criticised. And that was by Albert Hubbard. And I I say that and it comes across negative. But what I would like people to take away from that is just go out and just do like um, Benedict Cumberbatch just said, like, get out there. Don't be afraid to give stuff a go because we've said it so many times. What is the worst that can happen? And if you're smart, you'll listen to our other episodes and you'll learn a really good way to approach all your different goals and targets. Um, And then when you go out and you just do, you'll be doing it with a good knowledge background behind you as well. Yeah, and that's a real key message for me in the whole book. Don't be don't be scared of failure. It's actually a positive thing. So you're going to learn from it, and you're going to be better the next time. And knowing that should give you the confidence to go out there and try stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we've nailed that, haven't we? Yeah, I just did the whole book in a sentence. <laughs> Everyone, you're welcome. You just don't get that kind of conciseness anywhere else, do you? <laughs> hopefully james smith doesn't get upset about declining book sales because people came to us instead yeah i just say them a lot of time it is worth reading i would recommend it yeah it's still like i still listen to the whole book and yeah i would still recommend the book i i just found it maybe less practical than the other books but like we spoke about could be for a load of different reasons yeah yeah absolutely um thanks everyone for tuning in Tune in next week for... Have we got a guest on next week? No, it's not next week. Get your dates oh, right. Sorry. We'll have a guest <laughs> coming on soon. Um, tune in next week for the next topic, which is bound to be a good one when we decide what we're going to do next week. It's always a good one. Always a good one. See you next time. See you next time. Bye.